Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the empire that the Danish kings Sven Forkbeard and his son, Knut the Great, conquered in northwestern Europe. At the height of their power, they ruled over not only Denmark, but also England and Norway. That made them the most powerful Scandinavian kings by some margin, and put them almost on the same level as the Holy Roman Emperor himself, in terms of power and prestige. But their empire was held together by nothing else than the personality of the king, and when Knut the Great's son and heir, Harda Knut, died young and without any, anyone being ready to step up and take control of the empire, it fell apart quickly. The English installed an Anglo-Saxon king, and Denmark descended into dynastic warfare between rival claimants for the Danish throne. Norway had been lost for some time already. Even though Danish kings had tried their best to turn Norway into a Danish dependency for generations, the Norwegians were still resisting, and ever so often a Norwegian king declared independence from Denmark. The last time this happened was already when Knut the Great was fighting to ascend the English throne, and he had never really had Norway fully under his control for any prolonged period of time. The man largely responsible for this is the focus of today's episode. Episode 27, The Eternal King of Norway. Whenever Norway didn't have a strong king holding it together, the country tended to fall apart. We've seen this process of unification, breakup and reunification a few times already. Danish ambitions to dominate didn't help to create an environment for a stable Norwegian state either. In the end of the 10th century, a child was born to one of the many Norwegian petty kings. But he didn't get to enjoy fatherhood for long because he was killed, burned to death together with another petty king, apparently on the orders of Sigrid Sturoda, the woman who Olav Tryggvason refused to marry since she wasn't prepared to become a Christian. But the young boy's widowed mother soon found another petty king to marry, and little Olav, because his name was Olav, grew up in his stepfather's household. By all available accounts, Olav's stepdad was a nice guy, and Olav had a good childhood. The family was well off because Olav's stepdad wasn't only a petty king, but also a landowner with a substantial farm. Unlike many other petty kings we've encountered in our story so far, Olav's stepfather seems to have been rather uninterested in politics, and instead he was content living a quiet family life tending to his farm. Sounds idyllic, right? Well, Olav's mother begged to differ. She thought her second husband lacked ambition, and that he should strive for greater things than just a large farm and a local leadership role. But her husband wasn't convinced. The Game of Thrones wasn't his thing, and besides, hadn't her previous husband been burned alive trying to play it? When Olaf's mother realized that her husband was a lost cause, she focused her energy on passing on her ambitions to Olaf instead, instilling in him a pride of his illustrious ancestors and a desire to achieve greatness. Some sources claim that Olaf, whose full name was Olaf Haraldsson, was the great-great-grandson of Harald Fairhair. Whether that was true or not, Olaf's propaganda and his posthumous cult did stress his connection to Norway's first king. But was it true? Well, let's just conclude that everyone wanted to be a descendant of Harald Fairhair, and that is noteworthy in and of itself. When Olaf was just 12 years old, he was equipped with a few longships to go on a Viking raid to toughen him up. 
and perhaps to get him away from his stepdad, who must have found him annoying. Olav sailed off on what he hoped would be a successful and lucrative campaign, but the beginning was a little shaky. Olav's little flotilla ventured into Lake Mälaren in Sweden and pillaged and plundered along its shores. Lake Mälaren is a large lake. It stretches far into the west of Sweden. This makes it an excellent route for travel and commerce, especially in a time when roads weren't particularly good. It's actually connected to the Baltic Sea at a narrow point at the eastern end, where the lake falls into the sea. That's where Stockholm stands today, but back in the day of Olaf Haraldsson, Stockholm hadn't been founded yet. The lakeside communities were rich, and Olav collected a lot of loot. So far so good. But the locals were mighty upset by this plundering, so they blocked the strait connecting the lake and the sea with heavy chains, trapping the barely pubescent Viking and his posse inside. To escape, Olav had to make his men dig a canal, creating an alternative route out of the lake, and that was the way they escaped the trap set for them. Or... That's what Snorri Sturluson claims, anyway. After escaping into the Baltic Sea, Olaf went pillaging in Finland, the Baltic countries, Denmark, England and France for several more years. Some sources relate that Olaf raided in England together with Thorkel the Tall, who we met last time. During an attack on Canterbury, Olaf kidnapped the archbishop himself, hoping to squeeze a lot of ransom money out of the church to release their most senior clergymen in England. But to the Vikings' surprise, the archbishop not only refused to pay any money himself, but he also forbade anyone else paying up either. Olaf and his men were so annoyed that they killed the archbishop by throwing bones at him from a cow they'd just eaten. As compensation for his bravery and reluctance to waste church funds, the unfortunate archbishop was subsequently declared a saint. After a while, Olaf decided that it was time for him and Thorkel to part ways, and he set sail for Normandy instead. There, Olav continued to raid, pillage and plunder for some time. When Knut the Great returned to England in 1015 to reclaim his father's kingdom, Olav actually joined the campaign and fought with the king of Denmark for a while. But eventually, Olav returned to Norway to win himself a crown of his own. There are three theories as to why he did so. According to the first theory, King Knut the Great had promised Olav that he'd become the Jarl of Northumbria, and when the king gave that title to the Norwegian Jarl Erik Håkonsen instead, Olav was upset and decided to take revenge on both Knut and Erik by taking over Norway. The second theory is that Olav realized that Norway was leaderless and ripe for the plucking since both the nominal king, Knut, and the vassal regent, Erik Håkonsen, were fighting in England. According to the third theory, the English king, Æthelred the Unready, paid Olav to attack Norway, hoping to weaken Knut by prying away one of his kingdoms, and perhaps even managing to get Knut to abandon the conquest of England altogether in order to retake Norway from Olav. It is, of course, entirely possible that more than one of these theories are correct. Obviously, we don't know what went on in Olav's head, but we do know that Jarl Erik, the victor from Svolder, died in England soon after Knut made him Jarl of Northumbria, and Erik's son, Håkon Jarl, was young and inexperienced. Håkon proved this by sailing into a trap set by Olav when he returned to Norway in the fall of 1015. The trap seems inspired by Olav's own narrow escape pillaging in Sweden, for Olav placed a chain over a narrow fjord just below the surface, and as Håkon's ships passed over it, Olav ordered the chain to be raised. This pushed the bow up and the stern down, 
the ship that Håkon was traveling in filled with water and sank. Olav fished the poor Jarl out of the cold water and told him he'd spare his life if the Jarl swore to recognize Olaf as king of Norway, leave the country and never return. The humiliated Håkon didn't have much of a choice. He accepted the terms and left Norway behind and sailed to England. That was all it took. With only two ships, Olav had managed to get rid of the legitimate ruler of Norway. This did not, however, mean that Olav was now king. He'd still have to make the rest of the Norwegian petty kings recognize his supremacy, and that might prove a little trickier than pushing a teenager into the sea. Olav now went to his mother and stepfather's home to plan his next move. His stepfather cautioned him, counseling against trying to make himself king. It may prove easy to become king, but it's something else entirely to remain king, he said. But Olav's mom urged him on, saying, I prefer that you become king of all of Norway for only a short while and die young than to just be a local chieftain like my husband and die of old age. Despite this open display of disrespect, Olav's stepfather gathered four other regional petty kings and they debated whether to support Olav's attempts or not. In the end, they agreed to do so, calling a thing in the uplands. There, Olav was declared king over all of Norway. Even though that was a good start, Olav still had to fight for his title. But he did so successfully, not least thanks to the riches he had gathered during his Viking raids, not to mention the fact that his core troops were veteran Vikings who had been with him on campaign for eight years by now. The local resistance proved not to be a match to Olav and his Vikings, and when the fighting was over, Olav was uncontested king of Norway, mostly because those who did contest his claim were either dead or driven into exile, or had made deals with him to keep their lands, titles and heads attached to their shoulders. Soon, the new king got himself tangled up in a turf war with a Swedish colleague, who, by sheer coincidence, was also called Olav. One day, Norwegian King Olav received two emissaries from the King of Sweden, who said that they had come to collect taxes in a border region between Norway and Sweden, the northern bit of what's today the west coast of Sweden. Since the farmers there weren't particularly interested in paying taxes twice, they had said that they'd be willing to pay their Swedish taxes on condition that King Olav of Norway would agree not to tax them. The emissaries from the King of Sweden had now come to ask for Olav's consent to this arrangement. Olav did not give it. In fact, he was rather put out by the idea and forbade the Swedes from collecting taxes in the area. When one of them did anyway, Olav had him and his retinue killed. He then went on to block the sale of herring and salt from that coastal region to the Swedes further inland. The King of Sweden was so upset with his Norwegian colleague that he, in turn, forbade people to even mention his name. If they were to talk about the King of Norway, they had to refer to him as that fat man. But the King of Sweden wasn't going to be satisfied with mere name-calling. He also retaliated by killing some of Olaf's officials who were collecting taxes in another border region further north. Soon, the situation deteriorated into a low-intensity war between Norway and Sweden. Beyond the political and financial implications of the conflict, the two kings obviously didn't care for each other on a personal level, and they would probably have been happy to go on fighting each other for a very long time. But the people who actually lived in, in this border region were far less interested in a protected war between the two Olavs. So they forced the hand of the King of Norway and demanded that he send an ambassador to Sweden to negotiate a peace. First, 
the ambassador went to the region of Westrogothia in western Sweden, where the local Jarl welcomed him and his mission. The Jarl knew that the king of Sweden would be less enthusiastic and promised to come along to support the Norwegian ambassador. On his advice, they popped by the Jarl's foster father, Torgny Lawspeaker, for a quick visit and strategy meeting before going to see the king. Torgny Lawspeaker was as respected as he was old, and, according to what we're told, he had a beard that reached all the way to his knees. The Jarl explained to his foster father that he feared that the king wouldn't take kindly to talk of peace with Olaf of Norway, but Torgny Lawspeaker chastised his foster son, saying, You noblemen make me sick. You desire titles and high offices, but don't know how to approach the king. It seems better to me to be a simple peasant as long as you're ready to speak your mind, even in the presence of the king. Then he promised to join the ambassador and the Jarl, presumably to make sure the Jarl wouldn't chicken out if the king would be in a bad mood at the thing. It was probably good that Torgny Lawspeaker tagged along, because when they reached the thing, the king of Sweden cut off the Norwegian ambassador before he had time to present his mission properly. Then the Jarl of Ostrogothia stood up and said that the people in his part of the country desperately needed peace with Norway and that, in his opinion, the king should agree to a deal. To seal it, he should also marry off his daughter Ingejard to that fat man. Hearing this, the king went absolutely mad with rage. He shouted that the Jarl was a traitor and spewed additional vitriol over him, his family and the king of Norway. But then, Torgny Lawspeaker stood up. And when he did so, a large portion of the other men gathered at the thing stood up with him, because Torgny was well-known, respected, and popular. The old law speaker said, Things have changed in this kingdom of late. I am old enough to remember Swedish kings who expanded their realm far and wide, conquering land beyond the Baltic Sea. None of them were proud or foolish enough to refuse to listen to counsel, but you... Let no one speak unless they say what you want to hear. But the people demand peace with Norway, and either you agree to this deal, or we will kill you. Hearing this, the people at the thing roared in acclamation and banged their weapons against their shields to show the king that the law speaker's threat wasn't idle. The king realized that he had no choice, so he agreed to a peace deal with Norway, and even promised that the king of Norway could marry his daughter Ingeard. But that was apparently too much, because even though he kept the peace, he did renege on the marriage alliance, much to the chagrin of the intended groom. You see, the king of Sweden had found a more suitable match for his daughter and planned to marry her off to the king of Holmgård in Gordariki. When Olav realized this, he wanted to punish the king of Sweden by tearing up the peace deal and sending his warriors across the border for some revenge pillaging and plundering. But cooler heads prevailed, and Olav was convinced to see if there wasn't a possible diplomatic solution first. He sent another emissary to Sweden, and when he reached the home of the Jarl of Vestrogothia, another daughter of the Swedish king just happened to be staying there at the same time. Her name was Astrid, and the Norwegian emissary colluded with the Jarl to have Olav marry Astrid instead of Ingejard. Olav accepted, and the Jarl of Vestrogothia more or less smuggled the princess to Norway, where she was married to her father's rival. The king of Sweden was so furious when he found out about it that the Jarl of Estrogothia had to relocate to Gordariki, where the king of Holmgård gave him Aldegjuborg as a consolation prize instead of his lost lands in Sweden. Astrid gave Olav a daughter, but no sons. Olav did, however, have a son, Magnus, with his wife's maid, but that's a story for another time. 
Like all other kings of Norway up until this point, Olav had personal experience from Viking raids before he became king. In fact, he would most likely never have been able to climb the throne in the first place if he hadn't been raiding, collecting silver and fighting. Once he became king, he didn't hesitate to use that experience in order to silence dissent or quash rebellions. Most of the dissent that Olav, Olav was silencing was connected to religion, a topic on which he had some very strong opinions. We don't know for sure exactly when Olav became a Christian. Some claim that it was when he was raiding in Normandy as a teenager. Others, that it happened in England, or when he was a young boy in Norway, and that the event in Normandy was merely a confirmation ceremony. Wherever Olav became a Christian, he took his religion seriously. He was a pious man. There's a story about how he once absent-mindedly was sitting around carving on a piece of wood, and when a servant discreetly pointed out that tomorrow is Monday, or in other words, that today is Sunday, meaning that Olav was in violation of the commandment to abstain from work on the day of rest, Olav was horrified and punished himself by burning the wood chips resulting from his violation of the third commandment while holding them in his hand. He was also a big fan of prayer, and he often stayed up praying until the small hours. As a consequence, Olav was a late riser and was really annoyed if someone woke him up. This sometimes had unforeseen consequences. For instance, when his son Magnus was born, the child was weak and showed signs of not making it. The people assembled for the occasion feared that the boy would die, and the priest who was present wanted an emergency baptism to save the baby from going to hell. But King Olav was sleeping, and no one dared to wake the sleeping king. After some hand-wringing, a visiting Icelander took the initiative and had the priest go through with the baptism without waking Olav from his slumber. It was even this random Icelander who decided that the boy should be called Magnus. The whole story is of course highly dubious, and uh, it should be noted that the episode is recorded by an Icelander, so that the fact that another Icelander is the hero of the story makes it even less believable. During his waking hours, King Olav was very enthusiastic about spreading Christianity in Norway. So enthusiastic, in fact, that he killed those of his subjects who refused to abandon the old gods and forced many of them to be baptized. In this way, he reminds us of Olav Tryggvason, who also was happy to kill people to spread Christianity. Scholars have called Olav's Christianization efforts the great shift from paganism to Christianity. Despite the fact that there had already been Christians and a Christian king in Norway before his ascension to the throne. Sometime in the early 1020s, Olav supposedly convened a council made up of bishops and the senior men of the royal administration. At that meeting, church law was declared to be Norwegian law. For example, from now on, Christianity would be the only permitted religion. It became a crime to kill infants by exposure, that is, leaving them out in the forest to die, and you were no longer allowed to marry your cousin or a closer relative. In addition, and no less importantly, Olav was made the head of the church in Norway. But there are no contemporary sources mentioning these changes, so it may very well be that the changes in the laws and the establishment of Christianity as the official state religion were attributed to Olav afterward, when, spoiler alert, his person had become inextricably linked to Christianity in Norway. Olav's attempts to eradicate the old traditional religion made him the enemy of many powerful chieftains and petty kings. Among them were the five petty kings who had helped him become king to begin with. They decided that they were going to do something about it and started a rebellion. 
they decided to gather a force large enough to take on Olav, but in the meantime they had to lie low and keep their mouths shut. But someone talked. As Samuel Hume over at Pax Britannica likes to point out, someone always talks. Olav was warned, and he acted immediately. He had the house where the five conspirators were sleeping surrounded and forced them to surrender. He cut out the tongue of one of them, forced three others to go into exile abroad, and blinded the fifth. Olav was so pleased with having dealt with this would-be rebellion without having killed anyone, that he kept the blinded petty king as some kind of mascot at his court, a living reminder of the king's mercy, until the petty king in question tried to kill Olav in church. Since he was blind, his aim wasn't what it had been, so he only managed to cut Olav's cloak. But Olav still got the message, so he sent him off with an Icelander back across the Atlantic Ocean, far away from Norway, never to return. Anyway, in his efforts to spread Christianity, or under the cover of Christianization, King Olav crushed many powerful local chieftains, weakening the aristocracy and centralizing power to the king. As a consequence, and despite its geography, until the 14th century, Norway was the most centralized Scandinavian state. Sometimes, the kings were almost absolute in their power, and the local nobility was weak, both politically and financially. This makes Norway different from Sweden and Denmark, where the kings were weaker and the local nobility and large landowners were stronger and had more influence over politics, both local and national. A concrete example of this is the fact that Norway became a hereditary kingdom long before Denmark and Sweden did. There, the kings had to continue for hundreds of years to go through the process of being elected, whereas their Norwegian colleagues were just born for the job. So, Olaf centralized power into his own hands, weakened the Norwegian nobility, and survived the would-be rebellion planned by the five petty kings who had once made him king of Norway. But he had made many other enemies as well, perhaps too many enemies, too many powerful enemies at any rate. When King Knut the Great of Denmark had successfully conquered England, he could turn his attention to Norway, trying to regain control over the third of his father's kingdoms. So Knut sent a message to Olav, pointing out that Knut was in fact the rightful king of Norway, and Olav needed to recognize this fact and swear fealty to Knut ASAP, or else. Olav chose or else. He realized that he was going to need allies if he were to stand a chance against Knut the Great, so he turned to Sweden. Luckily for Olav, his namesake-slash-nemesis, King Olav of Sweden, had died by this point, and the Swedes were now ruled by a new king. He agreed to join Olav in fighting Knut, and so they coordinated a- an attack on Denmark. Olav sent a fleet to pillage along the Danish coasts, at the same time as Swedish forces crossed into Danish Scania and brought desolation to the civilian population there. Knut was in England at the time, but hearing about the attack, he sailed for Denmark immediately, forcing the Swedes to withdraw from Scania. In the fall of 1027, King Knut blocked Öresund with his fleet, so King Olav couldn't return to Norway. He had no choice but to continue northward with his Swedish ally, and had to return to Norway over land. When Olav did return home, he realized that Norway was in disarray. His opponents at home, who had kept a low profile for the last few years, sensed that this was their chance to get rid of Olav. When spring arrived in 1028, King Knut the Great showed up with a Danish fleet of 50 longships. Olav's many domestic opponents, who hated the pious king's hands-on, heads-off style of missionary efforts, joined the Danish invaders. 
Soon Knut managed to claim all of Norway for himself, and King Olav had to flee. He escaped to Holmgård in Gordariki with his family and a small group of loyal men. He was well received in Holmgård, where his wife's sister Ingegerd was queen, the sister he was originally supposed to have married, remember? Olav didn't know what to do next. He lived a comfortable enough life in exile in Gordariki, that's true, but as we've seen before, creature comforts had never been the enough to keep Olav happy. He wanted to be king of Norway. So when he heard that Jarl Håkon, Knut's newly appointed vassal in Norway, had drowned already in the fall of 1029, Olav decided it was time to act. He recruited a new army and went back to Norway to reclaim his throne. Every now and then, he received this or that celestial sign confirming the righteousness of his cause. Eventually, he reached Stiklestad, just north of Trondheim. There, on July 29, 1030, he ran into the Norwegian army under Danish command that had come to fight their former king. Snorri Sturluson relates long speeches that the commanders on both sides delivered before they started the battle. But despite his rhetoric and all the heavenly signs, the battle ended badly for Olav. He was attacked by three men. The first cut into his thigh, the second jabbed him in the stomach with a spear, and the third stabbed him in the neck, finally killing him. Maybe. The first preserved mention of an actual battle we have is from the middle of the 12th century, so a hundred years later. The earlier sources, written in the decades immediately following Olav's death, claim that Olav didn't die a glorious death in battle. Instead, he was either betrayed and killed by his own, or killed in an ambush. However he was killed, following King Olav's death in 1030, Norway became a part of the Danish North Sea Empire again, at least for a while. But Knut soon lost Norway again, since the man set to rule Norway in Knut's name was incompetent and caused a new rebellion against the Danish overlordship. And Olav actually had a role to play in the continued Norwegian struggle against continued Danish takeover attempts. This may come as a surprise to attentive listeners, since you may remember that I told you that Olav actually died just a few seconds ago. Grimkettle, one of the missionaries whom Olav had brought over from England in order to Christianize the country, started to spread word about various extraordinary, even miraculous things that happened following Olav's death. For instance, a blind man who happened to stumble upon the king's body at night got some of Olav's blood on his hands. When he rubbed his eyes, he could then see again. Even one of the three men who had killed the king also got some royal blood on his hand, and a wound he had sustained during the battle healed immediately. Others, who weren't lucky enough to handle the dead king's body personally, had supposedly prayed to Olav and were healed from various illnesses. Grimkettle had Olav's body exhumed in order to bring it to Trondheim. When the grave was opened, the body was perfectly preserved and the hair and the nails had continued to grow. Or at least that's what Grimkettle claimed when he went along and declared King Olav a saint in August 1031, just over a year after the king's death. This isn't as strange as it may sound to you, because in those days the local church still actually had the authority to canonize saints. And for those of you who hear this and start to worry about Olaf's status as a real saint, let me reassure you, his elevation to sainthood was also later confirmed by the Vatican, so Saint Olaf is a 100% kosher saint. Saint Olaf soon became a symbol for unified Norwegian resistance to Danish rule. He became Norway's patron saint, Saint Olaf, declared to be the eternal king of Norway by the church. 
which wanted all following kings of Norway to be considered St. Olaf's vassals. And that wasn't just pious symbolism, but rather the church's way to try and wield control over the secular power in Norway, since they, as the representatives of celestial matters on earth, would be better suited to tell the current king what the eternal king wanted him to do. For obvious reasons, subsequent generations of Norwegian kings have not accepted the vassalage of St. Olav. But he was still a useful symbol of Norwegian kingship, and his myth was cultivated by kings who weren't interested in taking orders from him. Statues and other depictions of St. Olav portray him with a crown and orb, he was a king after all, and an axe, because he was a Viking king, and a man under his feet, symbolizing the defeated paganism. Such images of St. Olav were legion in the Middle Ages, not least in the numerous churches dedicated to St. Olav, both in Norway and abroad. In fact, apart from the Virgin Mary, St. Olav is the one with the most Scandinavian churches dedicated to him. The most prominent of these churches is the enormous cathedral that was eventually constructed in his honor in Trondheim. Nidaros Cathedral, as it became known, was one of the most important sites of pilgrimage in Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. The relics of St. Olav were kept in this church, and those didn't just include his earthly remains, but also a helmet and stirrups that were claimed to have belonged to King Olav. Later analysis has shown that they are from the 15th century, and in any case, the helmet and stirrups were stolen by invading Swedes in 1564 and are now housed in the collections of the Swedish History Museum. Pilgrimage to Nidaros and some other churches dedicated to St. Olaf throughout Scandinavia remained popular for hundreds of years. Only the Protestant Reformation, which reached Norway in the 1530s, put an end to the pilgrimages to St. Olaf's remains in the cathedral in Trondheim. At that time, the two splendid outer coffins made of precious metal were confiscated, but the wooden coffin with the actual remains was interred somewhere in the cathedral. Unfortunately, the exact spot where Olaf's earthly remains were laid to rest has been forgotten, so no one knows exactly where his grave is anymore. But this doesn't mean that all of Olaf's body has been lost. One bone is still preserved in the St. Olaf Cathedral in Oslo, the capital of Norway, and another is found in the cathedral in Rouen in Normandy. Other bones were kept in other churches in Norway and Sweden, but they've been lost after the abolition of the veneration of the saints. The bone housed in the St. Olaf Cathedral in Oslo has been analyzed by scientists relatively recently. They concluded that it's the left shank bone belonging to a man between 25 and 35 years old. Based on carbon dating, they guess that the man most likely died sometimes between the year 985 and 1040, which fits perfectly with Olaf being killed in 1030. So King Olav, this divisive and violent ruler, became Saint Olav, a symbol of national unity that would inspire the Norwegians in their continued struggle against the Danes. But at this point in our narrative, it's high time we leave the chaotic political situation in Norway and Denmark, and instead have a look at the chaotic political situation in the one major Scandinavian kingdom we haven't really talked about in any detail so far on the show. I refer, of course, to Sweden. Even though the Swedes were a little late to set up a unified kingdom and adopt Christianity, they had more or less done so at this stage in history. We've just neglected to cover that part of Scandinavian history on the show. Next time, we'll rectify the situation and talk about the how, when and why the Kingdom of Sweden was established. But before we go today, I would like to say thank you 
To everyone who's purchased my book, where I delve a little deeper into Viking Age religion and myths than I had time to do here on the show. If you haven't already, it's not too late. Just go to Amazon or Kindle and search for Thor, Odin, Loki and the Old Norse Myths. Thank you also to everyone who's taken the time and effort to review the podcast or who sent me messages either on Facebook or on Twitter. It's always nice to receive feedback and questions. If you can spare a minute, I'd be more than grateful if you'd leave a favorable review and a quintet of stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a very helpful way to increase the visibility of the show. Another great way to get more listeners is if you recommend the show to your friends, family, co-workers, classmates, cellmates, basically anyone you know. It's in your interest too, because if you get them to listen to the podcast, you'll have someone to discuss the political aspects of early medieval Scandinavian canonizations with. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. And as always, if you're more of a Twitterer, then you can follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. And that's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.